great to come back. It feels like home for Randy and I. Uh, and so even though this feels home, that feels home too. I guess, you know, someone asked us, when, when you lived there, did you take the beauty for granted? And I can honestly say no. It, it, it's just so overwhelming every day that uh, it's, it's like imprinted in my heart what it's like to live with God and see His beauty every day. And then to be able to come home to this beautiful emerald green country and, and just thank God again for giving me the opportunity to live someplace beautiful. Um, I, I grew up in Fort Worth and there's not a whole lot to offer except the most beautiful sunsets you've ever seen. Sunsets are just spectacular. So God, even at an early age, kind of imprinted on my heart that, that His beauty is everywhere. Um, this year, uh, the lectureship was on uh, the Holy Spirit people, uh, a Spirit-filled people. And uh, if you want to go to, you can download the app, app that will allow you to go and listen to the lectures. And I highly recommend. Uh, it's called Harbor. And I'll show you what it looks like. Uh huh. Harbor. H O B E R. Uh, H O H A B O R. Like the oh, harbor. Okay. The harbor for, yeah. Okay, H A R B O R. Okay, uh -huh. with the boat. Yeah. Cool. So that's what it looks yeah. like. Okay. H A R B O R. H A R B O R. And. That's okay. With a, with a yeah, it's just boat. a sailboat with a cross in it. The like a mast. The mast is the. Reminds me of the movie where the slaves uh, look at the masts. Okay. Got it. Mm -hmm. There. Oop. Didn't mean to go there. Steve, that's what it looks like right there. Oh, cool. I think it's. Uh, Mine is saying Harbor slash PBL, Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, Randy had an opportunity to lead singing on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. And we got to hear um, my favorite author. And I got to have him sign my book. And really, it was kind of like this book then inspired me to go ahead and do this class. And his name is um, Brian Zand. I, all this time I've been saying Brian Zandy, but it's Brian Zand. And um, he's written many books. One particular one that you may want to get is on forgiveness, which is very, it's called Beauty Will Save the World. And I've, I've been blessed in, in putting my thoughts together for this class, have you guys ever heard of Walking on Water, Reflections on Art and Faith? And Madeline Lingle. Of course, Madeline is mostly known for Wrinkle in Time and her children's uh, books, but 
ring, um, walking on water was really important to me in my spiritual growth. When I was a freshman in, or maybe a sophomore in college, the, the book that most influenced my thinking about faith and art was <coughs> Francis Schaeffer's book, uh, How Then Shall We Live? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then one final book that really uh, influenced the way I, I look at what's going on in our world now is The Great Emergence. Uh-huh. And uh, The Great Emergence is by Phyllis Tickle. And we just lost Phyllis, I guess, a year and a half or two years ago which is a great loss to the Christian community. She was a lovely woman of faith. And tickle, just like tickle me pink. (laughs) Yeah, Phyllis Tickle. Yeah, great woman. Yeah, and of course, uh, today I'm really wishing that Richard Hughes was here because Richard, his specialty is the restoration movement. And so that's kind of where we're going to land today. And so um, just as a little bit of a review from last week, we talked about how the, the Puritans' contribution to Tyndale's, uh, Tyndale, of course, um, was the one that translated the Bible into English during the time of when the Puritans were uh, coming into their own. And their, uh, the first version was very influenced by Luther because it was all about grace, the grace of God and, as reflected in the scriptures. And then he read the scriptures over and over and he was really struck with this covenant imagery in the book of Deuteronomy. And he honestly felt that if he shined a light, um, that, that if the people of God would have a covenant with God, that they would be able to restore the New Testament church. And... Um, so the Puritans got a hold of this, and they thought, if we go to America and show England really and truly what Christ, uh, New Testament Christianity looks like, then they'll invite us to come back home without persecution. So in 1634, the New England Puritans gave up on England and because they weren't getting the invitation to come back home. And so they transferred all the metaphors that Tyndale had created, and they transferred it to America. So they were the chosen people standing in covenant relationship with God. England was Egypt. Um, The Atlantic was a metaphor for the Red Sea. Catholicism was the Antichrist. Canaan was the metaphor for America. 
and the Canaanites were the metaphors for Indians. And so because they so embraced this concept, they actually began destroying the Indian population because they felt like they were the chosen people and that the Indians were the Canaanites, which was a terrible, terrible theology. <clears throat> so in the southern colonies, they really embraced the Church of England and became Anglicans. The Puritans mostly colonized in the northern seaboard. So we're talking Massachusetts and uh, some of the other northernmost colonies. And then the French and the Spanish uh, were the Southwest and Florida. Okay, so we have a mix on the eastern seaboard. So between 1680 and 1760, the population grew in America from 25. Hi, I didn't know you were going to be here. I'm so excited. This is Emily, if you haven't met Emily and her sweet husband. <laughs> so, um, so you had Roger, uh, they grew from 2,500,000 to 2 million people in just that short span of time. Roger Williams was in Rhode Island. He was open to all faiths. William Penn was in Pennsylvania. The Anglican became the official religion of Virginia, and Roman Catholics founded Maryland because they too were being prosecuted in England. Okay, so just on the eve of the Revolutionary War, we had this mass evangelism among the unchurched because a lot of people that were coming to England weren't churched um, because no longer were you being baptized into the Roman Catholic faith. So you had Society of Friends, which were the Quakers. You had the Methodists. You had Universalists, Unitarians, Shakers, and Free Will Baptists. And in a minute, I'm going to show you the continuum. But last week when we ended, we talked about how this was the birth of the Meeting House. And that the Meeting House... Uh, had a broadside, uh, and then they had the short, the short ends, and that when you walked in <clears throat> to the broadside, front and center was the pulpit. Um, this meeting house was in Massachusetts, and as you can see, um, the pulpit is elevated so everyone can see, and you had the sounding board on top so that the speaker's voice would be. Uh, projected and we talked about how that they brought their own heat uh, they brought braziers that had coal in it so that they could keep their feet warm and the boxes were enclosed so that you didn't have drafts on your feet and <clears throat> um, anything else oh they met primarily during the day because at that point candles were very expensive and um, so these, the representations you see of the electric um, chandeliers, that was an addition much, much later. Okay. Was, so, was that <coughs> <in public? coughs> 
No, these, these would have been the Puritans. Yes, and they had escaped King James I uh, because he was persecuting the Puritans. He hated the Puritans, hated them. And so they were escaping for religious reasons to America. Okay, now then, this is Massachusetts, and this is pre-Revolutionary War. Now we're going to jump to... Um, the Cane Ridge Meeting House in Kentucky. And I want you to notice the difference. Okay, we've got the white walls, we've got the cross, uh, cross timbers, and we've got balustrades uh, in the boxes. Okay. This is where we started. <laughs> our, um, our branch off the Puritan tree comes through Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell. And this is the church that Barton W. Stone preached in. And as you can see, on the broad side of the meeting house, you have the uh, podium so that everyone can see. And it's a little rougher, don't you <laughs> But we are talking primitive Kentucky. And um, and gone are the boxes. The boxes have gone away, and we have pews now. And these were pretty sophisticated because the Shaker pews were just benches, okay? But uh, at the Cane Ridge, we actually have backs <coughs> and uh, sides. Um, the Lord's table was front and center. So you can kind of begin to see where we're, we're about to come from. We still, we have the baptistry, the proclamation of the word, and the Lord's Supper, which is um, the priesthood of all believers. Primarily, let's be honest, priesthood of all male believers. <laughs> but um, uh, we've got... Um, primitive uh, logs and chinking and it's pretty rustic. Um, how many of you guys have been here? Really? Oh, it's not that far. We uh, been for nine years and never really? Well, it's, it's a very dear place to go. <laughs> and um, so I recommend that, you know, take a weekend, just some weekend. And just go up and, and see. Um, it's it's very warm and inviting, oddly enough. There, I think it's probably because of the color of the wood. You know, there's just something about wood that kind of holds you in. But the proportions are such that um, it's very dear and, and it's very lively in there, oddly enough. So singing is really good in there. And... Um, I'm going to show you the outside. How many people in this whole, in that, that is such a good question. I don't know. I don't know. But that's a good question. Um, this is the exterior of the building. And so you can see this little bump out right here. That's where the pulpit would have been. Okay? On the other side. 
and and of course it was shuttered so that <clears throat> but when they opened it it would be open to the elements so it is kind of dark in there when you go uh, they do have it uh, lit with electricity now so that you can kind of see uh, more clearly and this is a portrait of Barton W. Stone he was born in 1772 and died in 1844 and Barton was um, uh, well I'm gonna I'm gonna let you read this he was uh, raised in an Episcopal home in Maryland. So basically, after after the war, 1776, um, Anglicans became Episcopals in America. And so he was born in Maryland, which is predominantly Catholic. And so when he came to Kentucky in 1796, he was a supply pastor for the Cane Ridge. Uh, and conquered Presbyterian churches in Bourbon County. And this was a real stretch for him because on the continuum, um, he, he definitely was not of the Presbyterian um, persuasion. And he had really grave doubts about some of the points of doctrine in the Presby Presbyterian church, which you may remember was very, very strong, especially in Scotland. So before he joined this church, he had a long conversation with two of their elders um, and or ministers, relating them his state of mind at some points, which disturbed him. And these ministers wanted him um, badly, and so they asked him how far he would be willing to subscribe to the confession that they had drawn up. And he replied, as far as it is consistent with the Word of God. That was his pole star. It wasn't doctrine as much as what he felt was true with Scripture. So one of the things that probably distinguished the movement um, was that he wanted to be just a Christian. He didn't want to be a Presbyterian. He didn't want to be Episcopal. He just wanted to be known as a Christian. And so that's why uh, the, the movement started out just being the Christian church. And of course, now we think of it as a denomination. But back then, at the beginning, he was just wanting it to be descriptive. We're just Christians. And um, so he had, um, we talked about the first awakening. The second awakening came after the Revolutionary War. And this was known as, um, he started what, what we would call the restoration movement, where he was restoring Christianity to its very basic uh, form in AD 32. That's, that was his goal, okay? We all know that you can't do that because we're all in a context um, where there are time and space, but he was very zealous about doing that. And what he's best known for was this um, 
revival that took place outside the cabin. So this is Cane Ridge. But there were so many thousands of people that came that, uh, and they would listen for hours. It was like a lectureship because it would last like a week or more. And, um, and I thought about him so much this week because um, his movement was very spirit-filled. And it would manifest itself <laughs> in people barking and howling. And, you know, he, he was really into the manifestations of the Holy Spirit presence among his people. And um, this was really, really huge. So Alexander Campbell came along. And, of course, what, when you think of Alexander Campbell, what do you think? Anybody? When I was in high school, I thought nothing of Alexander Campbell because I didn't even know Alexander Campbell existed. Um, Alexander Campbell, the first time I, I was on a trip to Austin with the Future Homemakers of America <laughs> from my high school in Houston, Texas. And somebody called me a Campbellite. And I, got, I said, a what? A Campbellite. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, he's the one that started your church. And I said, that's ridiculous. Uh, we're just trying to restore the church of AD 32. <laughs> I had never heard of him before. And um, Alexander, his, his father, Thomas Campbell, was a presbyter in Scotland. Um, he came to America. Uh, Alexander was younger than Martin W. Stone. He was born in 1788 and lived until 1866. <coughs> and Alexander um, adopted his dad's way of thinking where they really wanted to have, you know, they went back to this idea, sola scriptura, scriptura sola. Scripture only, only scripture. And so Alexander and his, his father uh, came to America and wanted a, a clean slate. They wanted to separate from the Presbyterian Church and become just Christians. Okay? Um, and so they began a work in West Virginia. And, um, and because my computer conked out on the flight we're going to have to be a little we're going to have to go to to West Virginia <laughs> This was his home. He had very refined taste. Um, he went through three wives because he had so many children that their, their lives were very short. And um, one of the things that, okay, that's a young, that's an old Alexander uh, at 60. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's an old Alexander at 65. I just turned 65 this year. I hope I don't look as old as he does. Man. Oh. Well, that was most interesting. That was. Don't laugh about it. Yeah. <laughs> <All right>. Exactly. <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. Um, okay, so he his taste was a little bit more refined. Really? Okay. Okay. Well, um, I'll I'll find this picture first, and then we'll go to it. Um, okay. How many children do you have? Oh, something like twenty-three. It was, I. I now, I say that off the top of my head, you always ask the best questions, and I always have, I always have to go back and do my research afterwards. Yeah. Um, I spent five hours in prayer every morning. Every morning, and I'm going to show you the little study. So he's not helping out with those kids. <laughs> Maybe it probably just turned itself off. Yeah, so it's going to queue back up. So, um, and in those days, um, the kitchen was separate from the house um, because they, they used open fire. And so to keep the house from burning down, they had a separate kitchen. And I will say that when I visited his home, try this again. When I visited his home, all I could think of was his poor wife. Oh my goodness, she was just, or poor wives. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, he was pretty prolific. Is this in Bethany? Yes, this is in Bethany. And Bethany, we don't have, um, it, was, it was built later. Um, here lived the leading influence in America's largest indigenous religion, uh, religious movement, Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and founder of Bethany College, built in four periods, um, and then, uh, let's see, yeah, I think that's the most important thing, but this was his little place of personal worship. He would get up at, was it five in the morning? I think it was five. Mm -hmm four or five in the morning, and he would go in here, and it's really a lovely facility because you can see it doesn't have windows. Okay, those were lined with books. He was a very well-read man, and he was very much a student of the Enlightenment, um, very influenced by the Enlightenment, and so all the walls are lined, and then this clear story provided him with uh, a flood of light, but it was all indirect. And so he would get up, he would go pray, he would study, like you say, for five hours before he even presented himself to the rest of the, the world. And this was a daily habit of his. And, um, let's see, I want to show you, I'm hoping I've got a picture of the inside of that. Come on now. 
it really is, it's a beautiful sight. He had an appreciation for beauty. And so the inside of Bethany, uh, the church, I think I'm just recycling. Yeah, I'm just recycling now. Where did his money come from? Uh, yeah. <coughs> hey, so have you been to this facility? Okay. I don't well, know why you in Texas didn't know anything about Autotown. Really? Go ahead. No, I, I want to know. This, this is a participatory. Yeah. Well, people distanced themselves when they went across Mississippi to, to Texas, and, and there, was a, there was a feeling that Alexander's camel got off track. And so, just like Martin W. Stone, you know. Yes. Uh, he got off track, so they distanced themselves from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> you have to read that. That's awesome. Thank you for adding that. Because that's, that's a part of the story I didn't know. But it makes sense. And, 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 and I, we met the, the minister, the, the one that really caused the separation. I, I'll think of his name in a little bit. Okay. Okay. Very influential. My, um, on my mother's side... Not my dad's. I've already told you that my dad's probably came over to escape King James because um, he got here in 1606. But part of my mother's family came from Ireland. Their names were the Loves. And they came, and he was a Methodist preacher. And um, we still, still have my great, great, great grandmother's Bible. Yeah. And it was used by her dad, James Love, in the preaching of the word um, when he first came over. Well, then eventually, somewhere in the, the family tree, um, they were baptized by Barton W. Stone. And Barton W. Stone and Alexander, Alexander Campbell uh, baptized for the remission of sins um, only adults. So it was an adult believer's baptism that they practiced. And uh, Alexander would go to that, that little building that I showed you. Let's see if I can get back to it. And because he was a child of the Enlightenment, he felt like uh, if you... He was very empirical. As, as you would think of it, uh, someone from the Enlightenment. So he said, if I can look for examples, commands, or inferences, then I can know exactly what the original New Testament, the apostolic church looked like. And so that's where our hermeneutic comes from. Commands, examples, and inferences. And of course, uh, I think most of us have tossed that hermeneutic right to the curb because there's so many flaws in it. Um, it doesn't allow for the Holy Spirit movement at all <laughs> in our lives. But, um, but it is what, it was the vehicle that caused us to arrive today. When Nan Smith found out she was having triplets, uh -huh. she sent a long list of names. <laughs> have threes, you know, and one of them was direct command. 
<laughs> That's rich. I love that. That's great. No, it didn't stick, but that's cute. <laughs> Command example inferences. Um, and um, so um, the, first, the first movement of the restoration movement was let's just get back to the scriptures. Let's just be Christians, not a denomination. The second generation that followed them put um, fences around it to make to protect the, that concept. Mm-hmm. It we was went from Christians only to only Christians. That's it. Mm-hmm. Third by third generation, we were the only Christians, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why you hear denominational jokes. Oh, you guys are the only ones in heaven. Don't tell anyone. That, that we're, you know, don't tell anyone we're here because the Church of Christ kid thinks Speaking they're the only ones. Just a little bit. First it was Christians Just only. Christians. Well, the, the just only. Christians. The motto was yeah. Christians only, but not the only Christians. That was they, the motto that's it. of that whole movement. Yeah. And then somehow. By the third generation. Right. Because we figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. We had figured it out. So if it, yes, it was, and and it was in in his purest at the time, it was very ecumenical, if you will, because they accepted people who were believers and that were baptized, and that was that was a faith reaction to it, and so then. The second generation put fences around it to, to protect that idea. And by the time the third generation came along, they were looking at the fences, not what the fence was protecting. And so that's when we flipped over to being the only Christians. Yes, well, what is the fourth generation? Oh, uh, well, I think that is my, my mother and father's generation. Really? You don't think it's us? No, 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 no. I really don't. Are we the fifth? Because I think we have different. Oh, we are. We are. Like, we're the fifth. Yeah. Uh, these guys are like the sixth, right? Okay, so here, here's the way I, I view it. Um, in my parents' generation, they took this, we're the only Christians, and they did not want to be, they were very much separatists. They did not want to be known as a denomination. That's my generation. Mm-hmm. And mom, mom, and dad, I, we, I grew up going to the ACU lectures. My aunt was the one that, um, they always had a book. Do you remember this? They had a book of all the lectures. And my aunt was the one that edited the book. And so she got to read everything that was going to be said months in advance. And so we would have these elaborate family discussions about it. And my mom would get so upset, especially there's a volume called The Crowning Years. It's bigger than all the other books. And if you really want to see a turning point in the Churches of Christ, I, it was that year. I would have been 1970, 71, 72 somewhere in there because it was the lectureship that caused me not to be able to go to Abilene Christian. 
because you know I bled purple because all of my family gone to ACU and my uncle was the manager of the bookstore my aunt edited the book I mean we were just dyed in the wool ACU fans so that's where my mother and father met and dad had taken Greek and he went into the mission field after that and so forth it's it it was very influential in our family so that was the year that we started having discussions about the Holy Spirit apart from the book. Yeah. Not, not a retired author. Correct. Mm-hmm. As being living presence in our lives. And my mom went ballistic. That's yes. That's it. I know it. That is. His, his lecture caused my mom to nice. blow a gasket. That's wonderful. Yes. Godliest wow. man I think I've ever known. Wow. Jerry. I gotta touch you. Yes, yes. Jerry and Doug got a lectureship together for the North and South Carolina Convention in Durham, North Carolina. Uh-huh. And one of the speakers was talking about Christian colleges. And a guy stood up and said, this is, these are all members of the Church of Christ. The guy okay. stood up and said, how can we keep them out, our kids out of the Christian colleges? Oh, dear, dear, uh, dear, dear. Their fear that the Christian colleges were going liberal. Yeah. And this Ryan Woods was the oh. director oh. of that discussion. Oh, yes, he was. He showed up at the lectureship. This is the first integrated lectureship <laughs> of uh, oh, wow. And what did he do? He had a, a kind of a self-formed lunch discussion where <coughs> anybody who wanted to could answer and ask him questions, and he would answer them. Now, is he the same, same one that was so... Oh, let me tell you. When I was a little girl, he showed up at the Polytechnic Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We were there. And he's the only preacher I can remember hiding under the pew because he scared the spit out of me as a little child. He, he hid under the pew? What? I hid under the pew. Oh, you hid under the pew. Oh, I just, oh, I just couldn't handle it. He just scared me. Um, My, that was the great. That Martin Luther King was <gasps> Are you kidding? Wow. Okay, isn't this juicy? This is where it starts getting juicy. That was a formative period. It really was. And I did a paper when I did my master's at uh, Pepperdine. I did my paper on this period of time because it was so pivotal. And really, the fruit of it was born 30 years later. Okay? But, um, okay, so... Here's the visual image that I got from my mother's gener- my mother and father's generation. Um, the truth is absolute. And you can know it absolutely. And because of that, it is our responsibility to tell other people where they're wrong. We have the right doctrine. So it is our personal responsibility to to tell them where they're wrong. 
and the caboose that goes with this. The locomotive is truth is absolute and I can know it absolutely. Therefore, it's my responsibility to, to and the, the caboose is uh, if your child departs from the truth, then you've done something wrong. It's your responsibility. So I was working all this out in my head when I was working on that degree. And so um, I began to realize, oh, I can't quite go there. I know truth is absolute. I know that. But because I am a human being born in 1953 in suburban America, my context is going to be different and so there is no possibility for me to know truth absolutely even though I believe there is absolute truth. My understanding will always be different in my context. So in that same lectureship um, Oh, I can't remember his name. He got up and said that. And that was the other, that was the turning point. My parents would not allow me to go to ACU after that because they were too liberal. And um, so when I did my, my thesis, I went back and took a look at that. And that's when I, I really feel like um, I kind of had my own faith. Does that make sense? That, that yes, God is absolute truth, and I will know him absolutely in heaven, but I am, I've got a context, and so I cannot know him absolutely, but I can sure try. <laughs> I, I can allow God's Holy Spirit to live in me and teach me, to uh, guide me, to be my counselor, to witness to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in my life. And I can see God's resurrection power in my life. He's done it over and over and over. You know, though, growing up, mm -hmm. I wished I would have known that, that there were other Christians in my high school. Yes. They didn't go to my church. I know. And I think, oh my goodness, I missed the blessing. I did. I knowing there were other kids trying to do exactly what I was trying to do because they weren't doing it right. So therefore, they weren't Christians. Yeah, they were going to hell. Uh, yeah. I, I once <sighs> said something about my mother, and I said, my mom was converted to the Church of Christ by Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, right. I'm so sorry because I don't believe that that is true, especially at the end of her life. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> I think for some people, that's where our focus was. It wasn't on Jesus Christ. It was on the church. I know. I know. It just makes you grieve, doesn't it? I just got back from Texas, too. Okay. And this is in East Texas, okay. 40 miles from, from Louisiana. Yeah. And I went driving through the back dirt roads, literally. Yeah. Where my mother and her, her, her generation had taken me in, in previous years to where they had the summer encampments <gasps> and 
where the, the, the river road through it and the wagons went down the dirt road and you know there was a frame of the structure of a house. But my point is that even in the church as we knew it, there were people there that just wanted to celebrate Jesus. Mm -hmm. According to what my mother, it didn't matter, you know, that, that they had a piano because we couldn't afford one. That's the real reason we didn't have one. And uh, She hit it on the head. Uh, but, you know, it, it was just, and mother said there were hundreds of people at these encampments. Yes. Where they celebrated being together and, and uh, they, they shared Jesus and they didn't always agree, but they still could be, be brothers and sisters. I think of it as otter. We're all over the, the spectrum in our thoughts, but we're so united because of Jesus that we worship together in the beauty of holy, <coughs> holiness. And um, I'm so glad you said that. That's really special. Let me put in a word for what's going to happen in this room on Wednesday night. Carolyn Wilson, who's been at Otter Creek for a long time, was in on the founding of Agape, is going to talk about history of the Otter Creek Church. And she's going to talk about <gasps> Jennings Davis, and whom you know and love, and uh, John McRae. Awesome. John McRae was involved in Otter? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I had no idea. That's so cool. Well, Should we? Might, might be a reason to... Come on, Wednesday. Have they have they told Robin and uh, uh, Dave that that's going to happen? Robin and Dave. Um, John John's son. Oh, oh yeah, I I don't know. I'm I'm going to email Annette, John's wife. Okay, and tell yeah say yeah. yeah yeah that'd be awesome yeah. Will that be recorded? I don't know. Uh, it had that class hasn't been. Have you been? You've been in that classroom? Not hmm? recently. Not recently. Yeah, but you you know yeah. you know that. <clears throat> that is so cool. Well, um, I I think I want to be that. Uh, I want to be here to hear that. I hope yes. Um, I was very blessed this week to to be at Pepperdine, and Jerry Rushford has created a historical center at, at Pepperdine in the library and it has nothing but um, volumes like The Millennial Harbinger that was started by Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell or which one was it? I can't remember. And that is the reason Texas was separated from Oklahoma from the rest of the country because boy was it. Oh, I was thinking of Foy Wallace, not Guy. Yeah, Foy Wallace. Foy Wallace was the one that scared me as a child. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. Guy Woods. <laughs> yeah. Foy heard, Wallace. Oh, he scared me. I heard me. a tape of a debate between Foy Wallace and Carl Ketchertop. Oh, boy. And, and my conservative <laughs> family in, in Georgia would listen to that and chortle about how Foy had really put Carl Ketchertop down. <laughs> I can just hear that conversation. Yeah. 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 Um, Who would have known that as we're studying architecture, we get into things like this? That's so the be. Like I know. I love that. That's they're they're. You can't separate them. Um, okay, so I'm just going to end.
real quick with uh, another little tidbit from my family's background moving to Texas. Um, and this goes right to what you're talking about. Um, for years, I, I wasn't allowed to wear a crucifix. Um, my mom was most offended by that. And, and I couldn't really understand why. But it went back to a little story of a, a mother who, uh, who, who got a call from her daughter. And she said, uh, Mom, why do we always cut a roast in half and cook it in two pans? And she said, well, my mom always did that. That's the only way I knew to do it. So you've only known that way because that's the only way I knew to do it. So she called her mom. I said, Mom, why do we always cut roast in half and cook it in two pans? And she said, because I never had a pan big enough to cook the roast at the same time. Okay, that's why this class is valuable, because we go back and look, and we can find, oh, that's where that came from. And um, looking at the hermeneutics uh, that we were born into, the command example inference, we will get later to what I consider to be our new hermeneutic. But, um, but the, um, it's, it's valuable to know from whence we came so that we can know what it is that we're doing and can jettison the things that are not valuable anymore. They, they, were, they were good to protect the faith that brought us here but not necessarily what we want to espouse and build fences around now. Okay. So thanks for being with me today.